Requesting connection. Established. Encrypted. We're live. The show you've been asking for. Advice, technology, and community. Linux first, all others second. This is Ask Noah. Live from Multispeed Technologies, the Ask Noah show starts right now. This is the show where we came to do all the things on Linux they said couldn't be done and... Take your questions on how to do the same. The phone lines are open this hour to be a part of the program. It is a free call. 1-855-450-NOAA. It's 1-855-450-6624. Or send an email to live at asknoahshow.com. My name is Noah. I am your host. Delighted to be here with you as another episode of the Ask Noah Show kicks off this hour. Joining me is my co-host, Mr. Steve Ovens. Welcome in, sir. Greetings from a very warm but pleasant South Dakota. Hey, you have uh, you have quite the quite the projects going on in South Dakota. Yeah, uh, I have several uh, large kind of reformation projects going on in my property right now, building stairs into a ravine and reclaiming some space that has not been tended since the property kind of was put down years ago. So it's it's a lot of work. It's another full time job. But you're enjoying it so far? Yep. I mean, part of it is you get to look around and, and see what you've done and, and uh, enjoy the progression as as you, you know, you plan with your wife or your significant other and, and you work towards a shared goal. It's kind of nice to be able to see how things are progressing and, and making tangible progress. Because, you know, as technologists, we don't necessarily always make tangible progress on a day-to-day mm. uh, basis. And so it can be... A little disheartening if you work hours and hours and hours and don't have anything to show for it. I hear that. That whole, like, own it, do it yourself thing, you've really taken that to heart, like, all the way down to the very dirt beneath your feet kind of a thing. Yeah, you know how it goes. (laughs) I love it. Hey, you too can join the program. We'd love to have you. You can join us at 855-450-NOAH. That's 1-855-450-6624. The email, live at asknoahshow.com. Steve, you ready to get into some feedback? Absolutely. All right. Our first email comes in from Zach. Zach writes in and says, hey, no one, Steve. I currently work at a print shop that has a very dated website and ordering system. and We're looking to replace and modernize it. The website portion is already covered, but we are stumped on how to approach the ordering process. What I'd like to know is, do either of you have any good options for an online ordering system or order management software where our customers can register for an account, submit orders, and then the employees refer to the order number and info, shipping address, status, change, etc., as it moves through production. Our current solution and process is just a good old MySQL database with a PHP front end on our website. Users can register for an account and submit orders, and employees can search, track, and update orders as necessary. We also access the orders from the database from the website and can change the status from pending to uh, prepare to complete, etc., I came across Hydra OMS in my search, which seems like a potential solution, but didn't see any ways for users to self-register. Looks like an admin has to create the user per account. Ultimately, we don't need all the bells and whistles of a full-fledged ERP or CRM. Just a simple database to manage and hold customer orders and let them create orders and tickets. I did find a suggestion that a ticketing system like OS Ticket could be modified to fit this purpose. If you have any suggestions, it would be much appreciated. Appreciate all you do for the community and the help of spreading the love of Linux and open source. Kind regards, Zach. So, Zach, I, you know, 
I got to hand it to you. If you were going to set out to kind of do it yourself and host it yourself, you can't do much better than, hey, I'm going to spin up the database of myself and I'm going to write a little PHP front end and have people show up and register for hands and do all the things. And I I think that's great. Uh, If you're looking for an out of the box kind of solution, um, there are a couple different routes you could go with this. So I see what people are saying when you say you could use something like OS Ticket. And I, you could probably get there, right? But really more in that case, what you're, what you're doing there is just kind of centralizing communication. You almost have kind of like a shared inbox. They're going to the website, they're clicking on a thing, and then they're communicating information. But it's not structured information. It's not asking for specific pieces of information, and it's not forcing them to add certain entries and not add certain entries, that sort of stuff. So I think it leaves a little bit to be desired in your case. If I woke up in your shoes and I were looking for a e-commerce site to run my print shop, I would look at something called PrestaShop. PrestaShop is an open source software that uh, allow is exactly what you're looking for. Really, it it is a open source web shop, e-commerce, and so it's a drop-in solution that you uh, you can stand up on a server of your choice, and exactly as you as you envision that you know people can go to your press to shop site and place an order for a thing they have a demo that's available at demo.prestashop.com so you can kind of see what the front uh, front end would look like or what the experience to your customers would look like and then once you kind of have an idea of uh, what that is. So if you, you know, they, on their demo, they have like, you know, a, a, a t-shirt. So you can click on the t-shirt and say, yeah, I want to order that t-shirt and I want it in white or I want it in gray and I want three of them and I want to add that to my cart and here's the product details and all of the things that somebody's going to want if they're shopping for a shirt. Uh, and then when they go to the checkout, they can add some custom things and hey, do we have your logo on file? That sort of stuff. And then it goes out to the shop and you print it and you can tie it in. It supports, um, integration with things like Stripe. And so if you you can have it so that they can pay for this stuff up front. Um, trying to think about how, how we'll phrase this. I guess what I would say is if you were a print shop and you were doing this, what you might consider doing is stocking all of the stuff that you do frequently. So like, let's say, for example, you work a deal with a high school and you say, we're going to do all of the high school sports. So all the football teams and all the you know basketball teams and stuff like that, we'll print your logo. And we'll do all of that. You can have the basketball team logo and the hockey team logo and the baseball team logo and all and the different color schemes for the light and the dark and all of that. And you can have all of those in your shop and on the computer and rendered and we're all ready to go. And then you can tell the school, hey, I have an idea. When you have students that sign up in the fall to participate in basketball or baseball, what I want you to do is give them this form. And what it's going to allow them to do, they go to this site, they enter, they they go to the site and they click on this thing. They just pick out the jersey or the sport that they're interested in. We have all the graphics on file. We have all the, you know, stock uh, jerseys and stuff in stock. And so we just print them and then we send them out. And in this way, it's more convenient for the families, more convenient for the students. The school is like, great, that's awesome. We don't have to handle ordering. It's all handled by the, the print shop we work with. Fantastic. And oh, by the way, you got all these people coming to your site because you can self-host PrestaShop. So I, th- I think for all of those reasons, I think this is uh, this is exactly what you're looking for. But if I've learned anything in doing this program for five years, it's that whatever I think is a good answer, oftentimes what you end up happening is you have other people that listen and go, hey, I've used something else. And there's this other thing out there as well. And so if you're listening to this and you are listening to what Zach's trying to do with his print shop and say, hey, I know something better than PrestaShop, then I'd invite you to write in live at asknoshow.com. We'd love to take uh, that information and get it disseminated to Zach. Again, you can also join the program 855-450-NOAH. That's 855-450-6624. The email live at asknoahshow.com.
Delmer calls in from Grand Forks. Hey, Delmer, welcome into the Ask Noah Show. Hey, Noah, it's good to talk to you again. Say, I have a couple of questions. I hope you have time for them both. But sure. Uh, I'm going to start out with uh, with home automation and, and home assistance. Since I was trying to call in when you and Steve had your your conversation about it, but didn't have a chance to. Uh, anyways, when I had began my journey in home automation, I had done some research on what type of uh, sensors I wanted to put around the house, like motion sensors, temp sensors, uh, door sensors, and so on. And and uh, I found that I what I thought was the best were the the Z-Wave protocol sensors mm. and i was happy to know that steve kind of gave his nod toward it as well since he sounds like he has quite a bit of experience in this as well and mm-hmm. and uh so i kind of toyed around with it at first uh you know i spun up a raspberry pi put home assistant on there bought a few sensors and sprinkled them around the house just to see what i could do and and uh well my network crashed or the whole Ooh. thing just didn't work one day like the home assistant couldn't see the sensors and there was nothing happening and so i just kind of chalked it up to maybe i had too many sensors uh hooked up to the raspberry pi and the raspberry pi couldn't handle it i don't know anyways i kind of dropped it for a few years and didn't get back to it till recently and uh so i did i bought a uh a, a little bit better machine i used a, a repurposed you know dual core uh small form factor desktop installed home assistant on that the virtual machine and everything was running pretty good and then one day the the z-wave sensors just crapped out just didn't didn't huh. work nothing home assistant didn't see them there was no communication so i you know i i blew away the network rebuilt it did it all again and and what do you know it happened again uh but this time i didn't have time to to sit there and twiddle with it and so i i just kind of left it alone and like, I don't know, it was like a month later, I came back to it and magically there was a, well, there was a update to the, the Z-Wave app that I was using. Okay. So I installed the app or the update and then everything started to work again. For strange. And so going, yeah. And going forward after that, um, whenever there was a, a Z-Wave, the whatever, the service or whatever whenever there was an update i was really really slow to update i didn't update right away i just got i'd wait for two maybe three weeks and then i'd update and and that seemed to go all right and then i set up a a, another network at my parents place and i i can remote into that and i can see what's going on and there again i sprinkled about a bunch of z-wave sensors and what i did what i do now is i update their network first before i (laughs) update mine Mm -hmm. And if anything goes wrong on their network, then I know not to update. Gotcha. Well, anyways, a week and a half ago, I updated I updated my network first because everything had been going pretty smooth for the last, I'd say, like year and a half or so. And doggone it, after I updated, everything, Home Assistant lost sight of everything. Nothing was working. <sighs> and I've, I really dove into the Z-Wave now, and, and, and that's, I mean, wall switches, sensors, yeah, everything is pretty much Z-Wave. And so my whole network had just crashed or just fell apart. I mean, nothing was working. All my automations were, weren't doing anything. And so I was just wondering if you had any insight as to what, you know, if you had heard anything about that or 
Yeah. Well, I'll, t- I'll tell you right off the bat, my initial reaction is I highly doubt it's something Z-Wave specific So, insofar as there's something wrong with Z-Wave because there are plenty of people that are using Z-Wave without those problems. Um, when you say sprinkled devices, uh, can you give me a ballpark of how many devices we're talking? Uh, I think I have nine, six to nine temperature and motion sensors. Okay. Um, I think I have two, three, uh, roughly about the same uh, in-wall switches. Um, uh, boy, all told, I think I have just under 30 devices around the house. Okay. Okay. So not, not a crazy amount. Steve, have you ever heard of that? All the Z-Wave no. devices just kind of dying all at one time? The only thing I can think of is there's something wrong with the Z-Wave stick itself. Um, that's not to say that software doesn't have problems because I, I experience a similar thing with my, uh, with my Zigbee stuff. Like I just have found Zigbee to be completely un, unrealistic and un, unreliable. That's the word I was looking for. Mm. Um, I've had the exact opposite. My Z-Wave stuff works even when the Wi-Fi stuff is down, uh, which is why it has been put in. I, I put it everywhere, basically. So I have understood that the I, when I jumped in, I, I went with Z-Wave JS uh, and I understand that the original Z-Wave um, component was hit or miss for people because there was a time where Home Assistant was carrying two different plugins for Z-Wave. So there's Z-Wave JS and then just Z-Wave. And I understand that, that the Z-Wave one was a little bit wonky and they very recently just deprecated it. Like it's, it, they stopped supporting it past the, per, um, I want to say past the July release. I don't remember exactly cause it didn't affect me. Um, my guess is that it's the Z wave stick itself, but it's hard to say, like, it'd be interesting to see what, what the map looked like, um, uh, because Z wave will display like a network graph and it'll know where all of its neighbors are and all the rest of that. I'd be interested to see um, what the what the map looked like and, and whether things are dangling. And when, it, <laughs> when something is dangling, it's not really connected to a node that can get to a controller. So that can happen sometimes, but Z-Wave is supposed to, every day it's supposed to try and heal itself. Like, so it kind of scans the network and heals itself. Um, I can tell you that I have devices that are gone for multiple days at a time and just rejoin without problem. The I have a button that I carry with me that's Z-Wave, and it just, like when I'm out of town or whatever, it comes with me. So it's off the network for days at a time. And it, as soon as I'm back in proximity, it just picks up and starts working again. So it's really frustrating to be in that situation. I I can sympathize. I... I don't really know. My first thought was you didn't have enough um, enough routers, and a router would be anything that's hardwired in, like a light switch or a plug. But it sounds like that's not your case, right? You said you've got a bunch of stuff that's hardwired in. Mm-hmm. What um, do you know? What do you know? What uh, Z-Wave stick you're using on the computer side? Like what's plugged into your home assistant box? Yeah, it's the AOTech, uh, I think it was the Gen 5 stick. Okay. Is it plugged in directly or is it on an extension? No, it's plugged in directly. So there there definitely are 
a lot there's a lot of good anecdotal evidence to move it away so i actually put mine on an extension because um just similar to most wi-fi let me say wireless protocols the further you can get it away from other electronics the better off it is so you might consider doing that although i don't think that's going to solve your problem because if it's just working fine um it would be interesting have you so are you running the like the home assistant operating system or are you running are you running your own operating system and just installing home assistant on it oh sure yeah i should have been more specific with that since since the uh, small form uh computer that i had laying about i did purchase uh the home assistant bundle off of a meridroid it was using a uh i don't remember exactly what the board was but I, it was a it's a dedicated uh little tiny almost a raspberry tie pie size computer uh, that runs the home assistant operating system and everything. So I would be interested to see if you can get the logs off of that when this happens. That that would be ultimately where I would start to see, like, the very first thing I would do, because I've ha I have absolutely experienced this with my, Z or my Z Zigbee stick, and I've, I've complained to Noah about this, my Zigbee stick will just disappear if the box reboots. And I actually have to go in there and and essentially unplug and plug it back in, even though my Z-Wave stick doesn't suffer the same thing. Um, my there doesn't seem to be anything wrong with my my stick, but it just completely just disappears. And then I see a bunch of Home Assistant things that are like, "Hey, the the stick's gone, so I can't talk to anything." Uh, I would be interested to see if you have something like that when you've experienced a failure. Is what's happening in the logs? Does it think the stick is there and I've just lost my endpoints? Does it think that the hardware has just disappeared on you? It, it's not really enough information to, to troubleshoot it. I tell you what, let me do this. Yeah, it, I should have had my... I, I have an idea here. So, Delmer, you're in Grand Forks, right? Yep. Okay, here's what I'm, here's what, here's what, here's what I'm thinking we might do. Uh, what if I, you know... If what we need here is is a point of stability, something that we can work kind of back through, if we give you a uh, a Z-Wave stick that we know works well, um, would that solve your problem? You could take it, you could put it in, you could see if everything works. If it works, then you just then your problem solved. And if it doesn't work, then you can give us a call back and say, "Hey, I really appreciate it, but it still didn't solve my problem." Yeah, that would be great. Okay. Uh, but let me. Uh, I should have had my, my, uh, my my home assistant up here on the laptop as I'm talking, because I can go back in time to the log entry when this stuff was happening, and it was saying something that it couldn't find. <sighs> Doggone. It's okay. We all we all go through it, and we're here. We're just here to help you. Yeah. So if this is what serves you best, there's there's no problem here. Plus one to that. You yeah, said shoot, I'll go through my log and I'll find that log entry again and email it to you. But it said it the log entry I looked at said it couldn't find either like a binary or or something software wise. Yeah, we'll have to take a look at. Uh, um, I would want to see all the logs and the surrounding logs to the event because sometimes that what an application throws is not actually what the problem is because the application. Mm doesn't catch it in the right spot. So 
I can tell you from experience writing applications that you may think you're doing really good error catching, but something slips through and something way up the stack throws like, hey, I couldn't find this IP, which is not the right thing. It's just because it throws an, it throws an unrelated error message because it doesn't know what to do with, with the problem that's encountered. So it can be tricky to mm. diagnose these things just simply based on what it says. You said you had a few questions. Okay. Yeah. Uh, oh, one more comment. I, yeah. uh, somebody had, I don't think somebody had emailed in, this was many, many, probably even months ago now, uh, trying to determine uh, garage door status. Yes. And I have been using, I've been using a, a little Z-Wave tilt sensor, and it has been working fabulously when my Z-Wave network is working. Um it's wireless. It runs off of one of those CR123 batteries. And uh, the battery, the my garage isn't insulated. And you know, Noah, from our winter last year, <laughs> uh, that battery in that, in that sensor performed uh, beautifully. I mean, it went, I, it almost made it a year where I, until I had to change it. I think it made it like eight, nine months, uh, which is pretty good, all things considered, with that winter we had. So, yeah. Yeah, it's just a little device that's on the garage door, and it, like I said, it's a tilt sensor. When it's up, it lets you know when it's up, and when it's down, it lets you know when it's down. So uh, pretty simple, slick. That's good to know. We'll add that to the so, list. Moving on to my – yeah, and if if your listeners are interested, if you go to eBay or Amazon and type in Z-Wave tilt sensor, it, uh, it'll come right up. All right. We'll, we'll add and that then, to the uh, list. My next question was – yeah, my next question, uh, a friend of mine had called me, and he was having some issues with his Internet. Uh, and he's not very tech-savvy, and I'm not far behind him, but I was trying to think of ways of how to troubleshoot that, trying to figure out, you know, is it is it really his, his Internet service or is it his own personal home network that is giving him problem? And then I started to experience problems on my end. Uh, our family has a a few Roku sticks laying about the house. And um, we've noticed lately that some of the, some of the programming that we watch on there from different apps uh, will play for a while. It'll stop and buffer and then come back on and it'll do that pretty regularly. And if we watch another app like Netflix, for instance, I mean, we don't get that pause and buffer business. Hmm. And so I'm one, I'm, trying to determine where to start troubleshooting. Is it, is it a Roku thing? My wife was so upset that she went out and bought a new Roku device thinking that the other ones had gone bad mm -hmm. and it still does it on the new device. And so I'm, and it, but it just started happening recently and we haven't made any changes to our internet service. We haven't made any changes to our home network. Um, but, you know, if I wanted to do some network troubleshooting, what are some suggestions that you would have, you know, for, um, I don't know, programs on, a, on the computer or apps or something to, to you know, maybe look at some uh, packet data, some speeds or whatever? If you could see the or, smile on Steve's a, face, you would understand how happy he is to explain <laughs> what he's about to explain. So there, there's a... 
there are two different things that could be impacting you here, none of which are, are likely to be your, your speed or your bandwidth. Um, so one thing, there, there's two th things that will often bite people that they're not aware of and they blame the internet provider, which is not necessarily the case. So just like when you're taking, like if you're to cross the United States um, from east to west, you might plot out your path, right? Like taking all the major highways. But if you run into construction, you have to reroute and go down. Just like that, the packets that go over the internet have to be able to reroute around outages. And on top of that, they route around tolls just like you do. So my ISP has to pay a toll when the packets get to somebody else's network. And they often form what's called peering agreements and so they will prefer the cheapest route over the ones that are going to be more expensive and more direct. So to give you a very concrete example, I was experiencing a problem with a, a fairly well-known video game when I was living in Canada. And what was happening was I traced my packets because there's something called trace path. And I traced my packets from my house in middle Ontario to Chicago, up into Alberta, and then back to Ontario into Toronto, where I live two hours from Toronto. And, you know, logically, you're like, well, I live two hours from this place. Like, why is it taking so long? And it happened that way because the ISP that I had changed their peering agreement and sent the packet basically halfway, sent it all halfway to and back. And there is nothing you can do about that. So um, that's why you might be affected getting to Netflix or some other place, but not some other places because where the where the end point is might be like one place might be in New York and the other place might be in LA and the way your packets have to route, sometimes they take a bizarre route like through, uh, for example, it's not uncommon to go through Taiwan or one of the places in the Pacific and then back to mainland because that's just the cheapest route for them to go. So one is one is the path that your packet will take. The other thing that you'll that you can do is to check your ping, which is basically how long it takes to get to a destination. So even mm. if you're going back and forth, they'll also do things like the peering agreement is may also throttle packets. Or in one case, I was able to help my ISP um, determine that they had a dying switch just because of how long it took to get across one of the hops in their network. Um, so those are the two things that if you're experienced buffer, those are the two most likely causes. Uh, it's unlikely to be the fact that you don't have enough bandwidth because most of the streaming services will just simply degrade your service to keep the, the play happening. Mm -hmm. So thoughts. So is there a way, you know, if I wanted to do a, if I wanted to do a trace path or maybe even a trace route, um, how, how do I want to phrase this? How would I check what servers like Hulu or whatever name your streaming service, you know, how would I check the servers that they are pinging off of? So from your house, you would just simply ping, like you would ping Amazon dot like whoever, like Hulu.com or whatever. So there's a couple of things oh. that you can do. Um, if you want something persistent. So I use something called smoke ping um, and this has been in, invaluable to me to uh, demonstrate to my ISP that is actually their problem as opposed to someone else's problem. 
Um, there are less complicated ways. It, it's not a complicated program. Don't get me wrong, but there are, there are more more easily accessible programs out there that will do this. But the reason why I like this one is it's been around a long time. It kicks out a nice, pretty graph, and and you can do things like track it over 365 days, and it shows you in a color a colored pattern like the pings at this point in time like spiked over 500 milliseconds or whatever it is. Um, and you can do the same thing with just using a um, visual trace route. So for example, if you just search visual trace route, there's a bunch of websites that will allow you to trace from where you are to wherever your destination is. If you just want to kind of see um, what's out there, there's also something called ping plotter that does a very similar thing. It's just a little app that you run and it will kind of show you all of the hops. So what I like about ping plotter is that it, it does the trace path as well as the, the ping at the same time and shows you which hops in a visual way and um, have the problems along your network. Hmm. Okay. Does that, and then, does that help out? Question. Sure. Yeah. Yeah, it does. But one other question that I just got, you know, would, if I were to ping Hulu.com, would that necessarily be the same server that the, Ooh, uh, the CDN streaming programming comes off of? It's your best guess because ultimately what's going to happen is um, if you ping that, it's likely to be at least the ingress point. You can't know how it's going to like bounce around in their system, right? But what you can say is you need to, you would have to take a look to see when I, so the best way to do this is in a browser, like go to hulu.com and fire up the developer tools and see which URL it's calling and then ping that. Okay. Uh, that'll give you the best guess. And there, there's plenty of tutorials online. It's not hard. Every browser has some sort of developer tool where uh, you just, you click on the developer tool in the network tab and then you type in your like hulu.com and then press play and see what it's doing in the background and then you ping that some of them will even have like a separate media like you can do like media tabs so you can look at what is coming in as streaming media and then you know oftentimes you'll see like cdn dot and then a whole bunch of gibberish oh okay is that helpful to you excellent yeah yeah that gives me a start and then i can i can uh go down the rabbit hole after that okay what else you got for us? No, that should be it. That's Thank it. Oh, you very much. All right. Yeah, no problem. Now, don't hang up. Uh, uh, stay on the line. And what I'm going to do is I'm going to put you back on hold, and we are going to give you a Go Control Hub ZB1 USB Hub Stick. And this is a favorite of Steve and I's for uh, Z-Wave. It does both Z-Wave and Zigbee. Um, it's a little USB dongle, and this is actually what Steve has in his house. And so it's a gift from Steve and I to you as a, as a, as a thank you for listening to the show and coming to us for help. So I'll, I'll put you back on hold, and Sarah, our call screen will pick up. She'll get your details, and you can either come pick it up at AltaSpeed Technologies or we'll ship it out to you. And thanks again for giving us a call. We'd, Give us a call back. Let us know how it works out. If either this fixes it or if you come up across a different solution. Again, 855-450-NOAH. It's 855-450-6624. The email, live at asknoahshow.com. Our second email comes in from Matthew. Matthew writes in and says, hey, Noah and Steve, thanks a lot for the show. I have a question for you today. I'm making a C-file server for a client. Now, 
I've purchased an OVH VPS and I've installed Debian 11 on it. I installed C file on Docker and I blocked every port but 443 on the public zone on the firewall. And I opened SSH on Tailscale zone that I created. My Tailscale account is locked with TOTP and HTTPS is activated via the auto encrypt option in the Docker compose file. I deleted the default user and the root user. I don't think you can delete the root user. And is my server secure enough? Is there any way to encrypt all of the virtual drives so OVH employees cannot see what's on it? And is this necessary? Thanks for all you do, Matthew. So I, I want to get, I, I'm, before I dig in, take a crack at this, I, I'm interested to get Steve's thoughts on this. So, you know, he has done, you know, he's done his due diligence here. But at the end of the day, you're still syncing files up to a cloud server. So what say you, Steve? Is he secure or un secure or not secure enough yet? It depends on what your attack vector is. If mm. you're worried about the OVH employees, there, there isn't anything you can really do about it because in order to sync these files around, they have to be unencrypted because the, as far as I understand, um, C file doesn't doesn't work with the, the encrypted blobs. I, I guess it could. Mm. It could. Um, but then you're talking about like GPG encrypting the files or something ahead of time. Because if you're just simply pointing C file at a directory or uh, a, a block device of some sort, I believe it's just going to expect to sync all of the files there. And it, it is not doing any disk side encryption, as I understand it. Is that about correct? Uh, so I think in, in a traditional sense, it is. I do believe, and this is a fairly recent addition, I think it's uh, within the last few years, they've released uh, encrypted libraries. And the question is, is the password cached on the server? And I believe it is for like the first hour or something like that. So again, if you're re if we're really taking a hard line of we don't want the server, the people who administrate the server uh, to get access to this, I still don't think it quite cuts the cheese because if they were really watching that server, they could potentially grab it while it's in, while it's cached in memory for a little bit. Um, if, oh, actually, I, so I misspoke. I should have waited until I had finished the document loading. So from cfile.com, if you use the desktop client to sync the library, the password is never sent to the server. The client decrypts and encrypts the content locally. The plain text password is never stored on the client disk as well. Uh, if you use the web app, you'll have to input the password into your web client, which then stores it on the server and caches it for up to one hour. Okay, so the answer here is, so the, I'd go back to what Steve said. You have to get your threat vector and you have to understand what you're trying to defend against first. And so I would break that down even further and say that there are some programs that are designed to be exposed to the open internet. And then there are programs that are very much not designed to be exposed to the open internet and designed to be run behind a firewall. C file very much falls into the first category. It's car blanche designed to be a Dropbox ripoff. So you install C that's not fair. It actually does things better than Dropbox in a lot of ways. But you install the C hub server, you install the C file client, and you connect them over the internet, no problem at all. Uh, if your threat vector is you're worried that somebody who has physical access to the machine um, is a potentially a threat. I would say you have a problem even if you're using the encrypted libraries because I'm going to take if I'm a, if I'm a, if I'm an attacker I'm going to take a copy of the disk and I'm going to start trying to get after that password and if I can capture that password or if I can steal it out of RAM I get there if the encryption algorithm that's used today degrades before you know computing power becomes more powerful before you've had a chance to move that data out 
again, they potentially have a, have, a, have a chance to grab it. So then that would take me to, what is the cost of failure? If somebody gets that data, how bad is it? Are we talking, hey, you have some business deals that are going back and forth between a potential client, and if, they, if that came out, it would potentially screw the deal up? If that's the case, I might look at it and say, well, as long as I can keep OVH or an employee or somebody else from getting access to it for the next, you know, three, five years, that's probably fine. If it's, no, I'm syncing up, you know, super, super, uh, you know, uh, confidential, very, very secret, very, very private data, and I have to be absolutely sure that this cannot fall into the hands of anybody that, that isn't the people I've intended it to, I'd be real cautious about syncing that. I'd be one cautious about sending it over the internet to begin with. If I was going to send it across the internet, I would be cautious of putting it on somebody else's server. And I would be particularly cautious of putting it on somebody else's server, not even in the same country that's in OVH. And so, you know, presumably has entirely different laws. And then, oh, by the way, it's a Canadian government subsidized server hosting company at that. All of those things would make me a little nervous depending on again, the cost of this failing. But C file straight from their documentation would tell you that their libraries are encrypted and they're encrypted client side. So encrypting the data before the blobs are sent up to the server. And even then, the data isn't readily readable. Like if you SSH into a C hub server, uh, just as an example, and browse to where the data is stored, all you're going to see are, are, you know, are little files, um, which are essentially blocks of data that are then put together in the C hub software. So you're, it's not like you can just go browsing through and say, Oh, there's this, you know, tax returns and oh, there's the, you know, financial report. It doesn't work like that. Um, so is it secure enough? Really only you can answer that. I think you've well gone well and above taken all of the, all of the basic things to say, Hey, I've, I've cut out all of the low hanging fruit. Um, maybe the only thing you might add to that is again, if you're really trying to put the buttons on, shut everything down to the internet and only allow traffic over a VPN? I mean, this is just guessing. I'd consider something like fail to ban or something like that as well. Just mm. as because just because you've locked down to specific ports doesn't mean you can't, that stops people from banging on it. Right. So mm. uh, for example, when I had stuff hosted on the internet, like my own mail server, I just summarily blocked Russia and China because <laughs> nobody that I know is coming from there and nobody that I know should access it from there. And, you know, if, should you find yourself in that situation? Well, I'll deal with that when I get there. Okay. Um, so things like that, you might consider, uh, you might consider a deny list. If you're just like host.deny is just a really, really simple way of making sure that that's just not going to happen. You know, you don't even have to have some fancy program. You just go get some, host.deny file that's going to get the major offenders and you'll block a ton of script kitties when you do that too. Now you've entirely eliminated your ability of making a friend in Russia, but well, you know, uh, it's, it's trade off. What are you going to do? <laughs> Just something you'll have to live with. Yeah. Our third email comes in from Mont. Mont writes in and says, Hi, Noah and Steve. I love your podcast. I learned so much from you guys during my 45 minute commute each day. You're doing a great service to new converts like myself. I've been using Linux and open source software for the last four years, and for multiple reasons, the main one being privacy and security. I now recognize that mobile cell service is a privacy gap, and a few mobile phone users recognize. I hear you praise Matrix frequently, and from my reading the Matrix website documents, I know that Matrix is a great solution for interconnectivity with chat messenger services. 
Do you know if Matrix is capable of connecting to the mobile cellular characters? Car carriers, excuse me. If not directly, could there be some sort of workaround for Matrix or even a different service application? If you know of any resources in my search, that would be greatly appreciated. Of course, for the tech friends and family, just telling them to contact me via Method XX would work. But for the elderly non-tech relatives and company contacts, it's not quite so simple. Any advice on this topic would be much appreciated. I currently use a de-Google-fied version of Android, the E slash EOS, which is called Moana now. This helps with Google and internet privacy issues, but not with privacy through the cellular carrier's voice and text. Can Matrix help with this? Thanks. So I would start here by saying that, it, you know, when it comes to privacy from the cell networks, just remember by having, you don't even have to have an active service contract just by possessing a phone that has an IMEI and turning it on and being in range of a tower, that's enough for cell phone companies to collect information about you, period, end of story. So start there and we'll work our way backwards. Traditionally, when you're sending text messages, the provider that's sending the text message as well as the provider that receives the text message both have an unencrypted copy of that text message. And if you have any questions about that, just ask any corporation who's ever been sued by an employee. The very first thing they ask is, we want text records. And the cell phone companies are more than happy to provide a transcript of every text message that is ever received or sent, regardless of if it's work-related or not. Uh, if you're look so if you're looking to close that gap, Matrix can help here a little bit. Again, we have to understand the place from which we're building from. If somebody sends you a text message and they have SMS sending to or from, there's going to be another copy of that conversation somewhere. So again, just understand what you're up against. But just for the sake of argument, let's let's step through it. So can Matrix be bridged to SMS? Yes, you can. Is if you want the easy go-to, I just want to sign up for a thing and I want it to work, Beeper.com. This is exactly what Beeper is. It's a bunch of folks that used to work for Matrix or still do kind of maybe. And they launched a service specifically for bridging. So you download the Beeper app, you sign up for an account, you pay a monthly fee, and all your chats, including SMS, come delivered into one app courtesy of Matrix. And so if you just want to sign up and do the thing, that's the way to go. If you want, I'm going to use my air finger quotes here, options. If you want the ability to play and self-host and do all of the stuff yourself, it's a little dicey, but you can still get there. So there is an SMS VoIP provider called jmp.chat. I have praised them numerous times in the program, and today is no exception. They are fantastic. Their customer service is awesome. Their pricing is option is awesome. What they offer is awesome. And so you buy a phone number for three bucks a month, and they include at the moment, because they're still kind of opening it up to beta testers, you get as many text messages as you want. They're not, they're, it's no limited. And they expose their text messages over XMPP, which is, un, which is an alternative open communications protocol doesn't have encryption and all that stuff built in by default. But in this case, we don't care because, as I said, we're starting from an unencrypted thing from the other side anyway. So you have the SMS. It comes into jmp.chat. How do you get it over to Matrix? There is a free service run by the folks at aria-net.org. And it is a free uh, bridge, uh, XMPP to Matrix and Matrix back to XMPP bridge uh, running on software called Bifrost. And so you can, when you go to jmp.chat, you can say, I want to buy a number. And it says, how would you like your SMS delivered? You can just choose Matrix. And you put in your Matrix username and password. You get a message from their service and it says, hey, do you want to sign up for this account? And do you agree to pay $3 a month? You click yes. It says, click here. You, it sends you a link. You click on the link. You put in your credit card number and away you go. Now you're subscribed and all of the text messages that come are delivered to Matrix. Anything you send in Matrix gets sent out to the user. Okay. 
So far, so good. What are the downsides? So the first downside is, yes, it works out of the box, and no, you don't need any hosting or setting up. However, because you're not an admin of the chat, you can't rename the room, which doesn't sound like a big deal, but it is. I suspect if you self-host the bridge, you would be able to rename the chat or at least make yourself an admin so that you can rename the chat. The problem with that is you don't know who the text messages are coming from unless you memorize everybody's phone number. Again, off the bat doesn't sound like a big idea, but just wait until you get into a group text message of 30-some people and try and figure out who's saying what. It becomes a mess real fast. The second problem is... Frequently, the first message that is received from a new message sender, the message content doesn't arrive. Uh, it'll eventually propagate, but it takes quite a bit of time, far more than you would need to actually address a message. Once the chat is established, everything is great. But that initial onboarding takes uh, takes a little bit of, uh, of, of overcoming. And so if... It works, and so if you want to do it, that is that is one way to get there. I have personally stopped short of delivering my messages to Matrix. I do have a JMP chat number, and it does deliver my messages there, and I'm continuing to watch it so that I can answer questions like this and so that I can give feedback on how it works. But I would tell you today it's just it's just shy of production ready. It JMP.chat, flawless. If you sign up for one of their services and use their XMPP client, they recommend an app called Conversations, and it is I would tell you it is indistinguishable from a traditional SMS client. The only difference is you have to add the server at the end of the phone number because at the end of the day, you're sending it to an XMPP address, not an actual phone number. But if you're willing to put up with that, you install conversation, sign up for jmp.chat. I think it will get you to where you want to be, whereas your cell phone provider doesn't have a copy of all of your SMS messages. SMS messages. Oh, by the way, you also have the opportunity to install an XMPP client on your laptop like Gajim, and then you're able to send and receive SMSs on your laptop as well as your phone or anywhere else. Um, and so if that works for you, I think that is I think that's a great way to go. And it's it's what I'm currently doing for my SMS messages. As soon as we get all of the rest of the bugs worked out of the Bifrost bridge and I'm able to have those delivered to Matrix, I'll absolutely uh, move that direction. Uh I tell you what, as we kind of wind down the hour, I want to run over to our Linux Wire newsroom. I want to get the latest out of JT. He's standing by. Here he is. From the Linux Newswire newsroom, this is the Week in Review with JT. Nine cloud and Linux veterans have signed on to form the leadership team for CIQ. The company is building the next generation of software infrastructure for enterprises running data-intensive workloads atop the Rocky Linux Enterprise Linux distribution. The steam on Linux market share is up to 1.27% for August of 2022. In security news, researchers from Legit Security claimed that they have discovered a brand new CICD flaw termed the GitHub Environment Injection that enables attackers to take over a project's GitHub Actions CICD pipeline. According to the researchers, any GitHub user may take advantage of this weakness to alter the project's source code, steal information, move laterally, and strike inside the company, and ultimately launch a supply chain attack akin to the SolarWinds attack. A group of academic researchers have designed an open-source Node.js bug hunting tool that has already identified 180 security vulnerabilities. Ransomware attacks targeting Linux devices are on the rise, according to an analysis from cybersecurity researchers at Trend Micro. Their analysis revealed that ransomware attacks aimed at Linux were up 75% in the first half of 2022, compared to the first half of 2021. Linux 6.1 default kernel to warn at boot write execute mappings in memory. 
Ubuntu Linux 18.04 Systemd security patch breaks DNS in Microsoft Azure. The Uptix threat research team recently observed an executable linkable format, ELF, ransomware, which encrypts files inside the Linux file system based on a given folder path. They observed that the dropped readme note matches exactly with the Dark Angels ransomware. In release news, OBS Studio has released version 28. The Budgie Desktop has released version 10.6.4. The T2 project has released version 22.9 and continues its tradition of supporting nearly all existing CPU architectures. Pipewire 0.3.57 is out. The Digicam team has announced the release and general availability of Digicam 7.8. Nitrix 2.4 has been released with Linux kernel 5.19, KDE Gear 22.08, and a few new MAUI apps. Armbian 22.08 arrives with the Linux 5.19 kernel, Wayland by default for KDE Plasma, and PyKVM support. One of the biggest software firms in Europe, Yandex, has open sourced the uServer framework source code and has provided documentation. Arch Linux 2022.09.3 has been released as Arch Linux first ISO snapshot to be powered by the Latex 519 kernel. The Slackware-based Salix 15 Linux distribution is now available for download. Wine 7.16 improves Windows games compatibility on Linux. Ubuntu 2004.5 LTS has been released with the Linux 5.15 kernel. And Ubuntu 22.10 will be powered by the Linux 5.19 kernel. Thanks, JT. You can catch the Linux news headlines. They will run... We try to get them as close as we can to the middle of the show, uh, but sometimes we got we got questions to answer. We got technical things to dig into, so we don't have time. So, but uh, we appreciate him putting that together for us each week. Gives you a nice, concise look at what's going on in the Linux world. Uh, we'll try and get to one more piece of feedback here before we close out the hour. Charlie writes in and asks about long-term storage. So Charlie writes and says, "Question: What is the best method to store data for the long term? That is to say, twenty-five or fifty years. Would that be a hard drive, Blu-ray disc?" Micro SD, backup, tape. For example, I have school photos, wedding photos, and important business data that I might need to keep for a long time beyond the typical three to five year shelf life of many of the products. So I guess I, I would think that we need a little bit more information here to answer. Like, so for example, are we prioritizing speed of recovery? How long, you know, are, are we just emphasizing longevity here? But in general, Steve, you have something you want to keep forever and ever and ever. Amen. What do you throw it on? You have to keep moving it around. That's ultimately the answer here. Mm. Um, so part of the there, there are multiple challenges with storing things over over long term. So even a decade from now, it might be difficult for you to actually open up a file and still have the same format be available to you. In general, I know we're running short on time, but when I worked at IMAX, they did um, they did tapes in a climate controlled room uh, specifically because. Uh, other technologies are not tested over over long periods of time. Even the even the Blu-ray discs or the CDs or all that sort of stuff that said that they're good for that amount of time, like twenty years, fifteen years, ended up corrupting themselves in six or seven years. So hard drives, mechanical hard drives may work, but they're susceptible to mechanical failures and hard drive heads getting bopped around. Um, SSDs. Absolutely, you cannot do <laughs> unless you're going to pull them off the shelf once a year and make sure that you power them up for a sufficiently long period of time. So we don't we don't haven't we haven't tested this, to be honest with you. We have we don't have enough computing life behind us to say something is going to go 25 years or let alone 100. Right. 
Yeah. I have so many I have so many 100-year DVDs that have turned into coasters because they they didn't even make it 10 years. Yeah. Yep. So the answer is we don't know. The best thing you can do is every few years make sure you pull it off and put it on something else that is more current. And and how would you do that? Would you R-sync it? It doesn't really matter. I probably would make sure that you've got something like ZFS or um, B3FS to make sure that BitRod isn't biting you when you're copying it over. Okay. And would you recommend doing that even if it's on a single disk just for the BitRod protection? I, I, I absolutely would. And like I said, part of this is if you're really paranoid, like this is stuff that you really want to keep for, for when you grow old, the best thing you can do is to move it around to make sure that you can do it. Because if you mm. catch it early enough on a failing drive, you can get a professional to uh, help you recover that. Whereas if you wait until all the cells in an SSD are dead, the like, good luck. You're talking some serious expense if it can be done. And then you're sitting around a campfire going, man, at the time it seemed like a good idea to store data on plastic. If we yeah. applied electricity to it. It's just, what happened? Went down the other one, down the tubes. How about tape? Right. Uh, I would, uh, so I would either go, I would do Blu-rays and I would just have a bunch of, I would make multiple copies of whatever I do and I would probably split it up over different mediums. So I might have like one copy on Blu-ray, one copy on a hard drive, uh, or maybe two copies on a hard drive, one copy on a Blu-ray, something like that. And then my plan would be every few years, I'd probably power the drive up and R-sync it to a new drive and... And I guess every once in a while, spin up the optical disc and make sure the data's still there. At least try to. Um, and then, how are you going to make sure that you can continue to plug in your optical drive? Man, that is a that's something, right? Because we are dealing with that at a medical practice. They had all their stuff on magneto optical discs, and if that sounds foreign to you, uh, it's something that we have to contend with right now because it was a technology a few years ago, and it, it's it is it's getting harder to plug that stuff in. But I, I would. I would venture to say that for the next 10, 15 years, there'll be a backwards compatible way to get USB in there. But maybe that's me hoping. Hey, the music in our ears, it means we're out of time. The show is every Tuesday, 6 p.m. Central, asknoahshow.com. Have a good week.